Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. We just moved into the new studio, uh, new apartment. Hence why this sounds a little different. We'll be tweaking the space to get the audio right. Hopefully you won't hear apartment renovations on the podcast again. Fingers crossed. I'm super excited to share today's episode with you because our guest, Emma Arnold, is awesome. She shared so much great stuff on a wide range of topics. I think you're going to like it. Let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Emma Arnold. Tell me if you get this a lot because I I figure you might. A lot of people ask you, how do you get it all done? (laughs) Because you've done a lot. Uh, yeah, you, you put out four albums. You started a couple of popular festivals. You have three kids, and they're not like you didn't have triplets who are all in diapers. You have uh, you have double digit kids, uh, yeah, <laughs> double age kids, um, teenagers. You have a couple of teenagers. I right? do. Tw- they're twelve, fifteen, and seventeen. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so you know, and I'm all I'm uh, they're homeschooling right now too. Yeah. So. It's been quite an adventure. <laughs> hey, I bet. Uh, you've also written a book. I've written a Tour. bunch of books, but only one good book. <laughs> like one decent book and a lot of really garbage books. Okay. Which is and just how it works. That's how it works, you know? And it's the, the, there's one that people through a Patreon can get access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which it's, uh, it's kind of like, it's like a, how I've described it and the reason no one will publish it mm-hmm. is because it's, uh, it's like part book, part art gallery, mm-hmm. um, part like interactive piece. Like when I had started it, my idea was I had written this book and I was going to release a chapter at a time cause it's on a theme. Mm-hmm. And I had thought like, I'll research, release a chapter at a time. We'll do a live show element that will have my art. Cause I paint also that'll have like a gallery and the back of the live show. And then COVID hit after we did the first one. Mm. So it's been kind of like a, a little more difficult to release it in the way I wanted. But yeah, it's um, I'm doing that too. So <laughs> and then touring and all of that too. Yeah. How do you get it all done? How have you, I mean, there's so many people where if they do one of those things, they're like, you know what? I'm going to put all this <laughs> other stuff on pause for a little bit. Well, it's funny because I think before the last year, I don't think I realized how much I was working. Um, you know, it's just kind of, I think like, I call it like single mom mode, like, and I've talked to other single parents and you just kind of get in this zone where you're just like, you're just, you, if you stop the whole machine falls apart because there's not a co-parent there to be like, I got laundry, don't worry about it. Or I'll drive the kids this morning. And so you kind of just get in this mode of like doing everything all the time. And, um, you know, it's funny because I, I often don't think of myself as working hard. It's funny. I, the way I was raised, I was, my family is Swedish. Like my parents are actually in the backyard right now digging a hole because they're retired and they cannot stop doing things ever. Right. Like but there's just like, 
my whole family is just like very work oriented and you just like always stay busy and like a nap is like the worst possible sin you could commit against the universe is taking a nap. So <laughs> I was definitely raised with like a really kind of wild and steady work ethic. Um, but also I think I, in the last few years, um, I had pretty big, big burnout a few years ago. And so I started to like really start to focus my energy on the things that I was like, this has, this either makes me money, I love doing it or it helps other people. And so I really, uh, part of the reason I, I think I can get a lot done is because I'm very, very efficient. Um, I don't spend a lot of time like futzing around, you know, I, because of that, like, you know, I've been a mom since I was really young. And so it's like, you kind of get good at being like organized and thorough and just being like, you know, I have a, I'm pretty good about keeping a routine, I think is a big thing. I'm, you know, as somebody who like, I think I'm fairly neuroatypical. And if I don't have a routine where it's like in the morning, we get up and we do this and I eat breakfast, I go for a walk, I do yoga, I write. If I don't have that, the whole thing just starts to really crumble pretty quick. So Mm -hmm. I think having a routine is a big part of it. But then also like, I just um, have a lot of things I want to do. You know, like Mm -hmm. I always have been, since I was a kid, I mean, I was the kind of kid you had to keep busy. Like my parents, I was allowed as a kid to sign up for every single community ed. Did you have those where you were growing up? Like Uh, in South Carolina, like the, the, the schools here, you could, they would teach like adults would teach classes in the schools at night and you could take. So in a given week, I would take like four classes and I would be taking like, um, pottery throwing, beading, Spanish for beginners and Thai cooking. And I always just have been like really interested and curious and have always done a lot of stuff. And, uh, and then, and then I'll hit like, but then also I'll hit like these pockets where like, I just don't do anything for a while. Like I'm a pretty good, I've learned in my adult life to become a rester and like, I'll do, 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 do. Like after the festivals, I would always take like two weeks off and just like rest really, really hard and just Mm -hmm. not do anything. And, um, I think that that helps if you, if I rest really good and like really just sort of let myself do nothing and read and watch movies and not feel guilty about not accomplishing anything. Then when I'm ready to start doing things, I'm bored and I'm like excited and want to start working again. So I think that kind of helps too, is, you know, just having a lot of energy, I guess, is a big part <laughs> <Yeah>. of it. <laughs> yeah. That's a good method to, to make sure you really rest. Because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't do that. And also, it's just sort of knowing how you work best. And I don't think a lot of people are super aware of what works best for them, what method will work for them. I think a lot of, I think what I see from so many people that I've talked to about this and like uh, my partner who I've talked to about it a lot is I see this cycle of um, guilt. I think that mm-hmm. that's why people don't get things done is because if you spend a lot of time feeling guilty for not getting things done that like eats your creativity, eats your productivity. I mean, I I don't think people realize like what a demon shame is and how much of your time and energy and life it can suck away from you. Mm -hmm. And like, I I think that's been a big thing for me is sort of realizing that um, I have these sort of these phases of like, whether it's depression and mania or just like you know, uh, full moon, uh, new moon or whatever you want to call it. Like, I just always have been like the kind of person who like does, 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 does is super excited. And then is just kind of collapse. And and I used to feel really guilty about that. And I think, um, if, if people can like let go of the guilt of like their, I think that you should just be curious about your work habits and just be like, am I, I had a friend for years who like, 
she was like, well, they say that you're the most productive in the morning. And she would always try to make herself get up, but she was like a total night owl. Like she would stay up till four every morning and then make herself get up at seven. And I'd be like, why don't you just work at one in the morning when you know that you have, (laughs) that's when you have this like burst of energy. Instead, she was like always trying to mold herself into like this American ideal of eight to five productivity which doesn't right. fit a lot of us, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't work out. You're right. I mean, the whole like the early bird gets the worm makes everyone think, well, that's the only way I can really approach this then. That's the only way I can really do it. And that's not really true. You know, you can't yeah. actually get stuff done. It's like whenever you feel productive, that's the time you should be working. Yeah. But if, if, you know, the morning isn't that time for you, then don't worry about it. And I think COVID has helped people start to be like, what is the worm, <laughs> you know, and to start asking that question. And right. I think, you know, the worm has always been money, 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 you know, like, mm-hmm. how do I make money? And for me, I think maybe because I never have tied my success to money, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to, to a fault, probably. Uh, <laughs> but I ne- I always decided, like, when I started comedy, I've all I've ever wanted to do is be able to support my kids. And I've, I live very, very frugally to be able to always just pursue the projects I only want to do to walk away from things that don't feel right. And I mostly, you know, I definitely have had to compromise on that when I was broke and had to go do a show for, you know, 800 bucks that I was like, oh, this is not a heart one. But sometimes you got to make the money. But I think if in the for the most part, if you can kind of like, I don't know, for me, I've tried to re like restructure what I think the, that the worm is re, like rethink success and be like, especially during COVID, you know, I'm watching so many people right now be like fall apart because for the first time they're working from home or they're not working as much. And we've, so many of us have built our personalities around like uh, our workaholism. And so Mm -hmm. I think like having to like re reassess and be like, okay, well, what does success look like for me? You know, I sometimes will be like in the afternoon reading for a couple hours and then I'll get this wave of like extreme guilt of like, <gasps> what am I, I should be, and I'm like, no, it's totally cool. It's totally cool to read for a couple hours. That's mm-hmm. great. Like what a great use of your time, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that that maybe COVID will help people sort of refine that purpose, you know? I definitely myself have tried to do that. And I've also hoped that other people do as well, because things we're learning my girlfriend's working from home so for her for or like seeing her go through that i have said i really hope that businesses sort of recognize that it's not necessary to make people like hump it to work mm-hmm. every single day of the work week when they yeah. could just stay home <laughs> they yeah. really don't need to be in the office there are all these things that we do that are just draining our energy needlessly. And it's all because we feel like we have to do it. It's not because it's actually functional for us to do. Yeah. Or helpful at all for us to do. And I'm just all for what is helpful. <laughs> what is yeah. functional. Yeah. So I mean, I'm, I think I'm of my friends. I have friends in L.A. who have they work 40 to 50 hours a week, you know, they write for TV shows and stuff like that. But they also have an hour and a half, two hour commute there and back every single night, you know, yeah. and every single morning. And you're like, and now with COVID, they're all working from home. And it's funny to me because like, I can't imagine how post COVID people will go back to how things were because I just think people will be like, no, I'm not spending three hours of my day in my car. Right. I'm just not doing it. You right. know, it just seems like 
At least that very little piece of it has to change. And, and so many people went to their hometowns and mm-hmm. were working from home. So we're like, I don't even have to be in the state to do this job. Yeah. Like, why are you trying to make me do this? <laughs> this ridiculous time constraint of traveling to work. It's it's. A- I know. I, I like had turned in packets for shows, you know, and been like, and they were like, yeah, well, you do have to live in L.A. And I'd be like, are you sure? Like, are you sure I couldn't just like <laughs> Skype in or like, you know, do punch ups from home or whatever, you know, like and everybody was always really adamant about that. So for me, I'm like fingers crossed that maybe yeah. now the landscape will be a little more like, what if I lived in Idaho and raised my kids and also wrote for your amazing show? <laughs> you know, like Honestly, that would be amazing. The technology is only going to get better. We're at the mm-hmm. bottom of this Zoom thing. Like yeah, the technology is going to get so good, so crystal clear. Yeah, and there really isn't going to get be reason. There, there, the monitors are going to get bigger, screens are going to get bigger. It's just not going to be enough of a difference. Yeah, it's going to be back to the future too. That's what. Oh I'm yeah, <laughs> which I have totally seen for sure. I actually just saw the first one, um, like a few years ago. Because people were so annoyed with me for having never seen it that I finally sat down and was like, oh, my God, I'm going to watch it. So people will stop being mad at me. (laughs) Did you enjoy the first one? Yeah. And, you know, it's one of those uh, sometimes people because I was raised um, we didn't watch TV when I was a kid. Like we weren't really allowed to watch TV or movies much. So like I a lot of times have like these big like gaps in my pop culture knowledge. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes people were like, you have to watch this movie and you'll watch it. You're like, this does not hold up. Like it's. (laughs) Yeah. You obviously loved it when you were a kid, and that's why you still love it. But Back to the Future was fun. I was like, oh, this is cute. And Michael J. Fox is really sweet in it. And, oh, I love Michael yeah. J. Fox in it. Yeah. Yeah, he's really cute. And I heard that Tom Holland for for Spider-Man was sort of trying to emulate, and you could see it in the performance, that he was trying to emulate Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future mm-hmm. uh, just as, uh, as inspiration. And I think that's part of the reason why I like him so much as Spider-Man. I'm, I did not also see Spider-Man and I'm not hundred percent sure who Tom Holland is because, uh, is that the, are you talking about the new animated one? My kids have. Not the new animated one, the new, uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe one. I'm just not a superhero. My kids watch all that stuff. And a lot of times I will sit down with them and fall asleep to one of those movies. Like Uh I have taken amazing naps through all of the, uh, what are the really long ones with everybody in them? The Avengers movies. The Avengers, yeah. I have yeah. I have I have paid for a fourteen dollar nap through all of those because <laughs> I take my kids and then I just have fall, I always fall asleep. They're just not I don't know why. I just never have really been a superhero person. Like That's none totally of them. People fine. people always like, you know, like, what about this person? What about Batman? What about and I'm always just like, No. <laughs> no, I don't really care about That's totally valid. <laughs> That's interesting. So do you think that that's sort of a, I've never been to Idaho, so if I am being reductive here, please let me know. But <laughs> no, please. <laughs> uh, some of that sort of, is that sort of like a folksy sort of charm of Idaho to, you know, not be so into pop culture like people <laughs> on the coast? Um, maybe? I think <laughs> I well, I think like a lot of my friends were like religiously homeschooled, and that's mm-hmm. why they have like these like they were, they were very sheltered and like mm-hmm. they have those, po- these pockets of ignorance because of that. And I'm actually different because my parents were hippies mm-hmm. and my mom just, she just did not believe in screens. Like she just believed that like, my mom doesn't like TV. She doesn't like movies. She just mm-hmm. does not get it. 
Mm-hmm. And um, she hates video games. And she just thinks that screen time is a waste. And she always was like, her big thing with us is she wanted us to be creative. She wanted us to grow up and be creative people. And so she didn't allow, we were allowed to like, it's not like there was none. Like we were allowed to watch PBS a little bit mm-hmm. and we were allowed to watch movies very occasionally, but nothing with violence. It's funny. I had a very different upbringing than like, a lot of my friends were allowed to watch violent stuff as long as there was no nudity or cursing. And yeah. my mom was like, fine with nudity and cursing. But like the second there was any violence, she would turn it off. And she's like, we don't glorify that in my house. Wow. And she was like, Good for her, honestly. I honestly, yeah. Like looking, I hated her for it as a kid. I mean, because it made me such a weird kid and pe- nobody would come to my house and spend the night. Cause they're like, well, you're not allowed to watch TV. What will we do? You know? Um, but looking back, yeah, I think it actually is probably a really, cool thing she was very she was very before her time we lived in this small town in northern idaho and she um we weren't allowed to play with like gendered toys when we were little like not 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 allowed that sounds really strict she just tried to steer us towards stuff like she didn't do gender she didn't believe in that she was like very before this is in the 80s in rural idaho yeah Yeah. she was like very like anti like girly shit and Mm -hmm. um she was always very like pissed when people would you know say like I was pretty and stuff like that she was always like she's smart she's capable like Uh so far ahead of her time and and really like tried very hard to give us sort of this like progressive upbringing in a very conservative shitty place you know Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um yeah so I don't I think it probably is part of a folksy thing in Idaho but mine was very (laughs) different than probably most (laughs) Idahoans is that it's a hippie hippies yeah that's cool I, I dig that um now you have an interesting history for your for stand up because as, as I mentioned at the top here, there's so much that you've done. But you started stand up eight years ago, so you've yeah. a lot in eight years. <laughs> I think it's nine now. I think I'm at nine, yeah. um, but I'm not. I'm. I'd have to look for sure. Um, but yeah, I and it's one of those things. Like I always have been a little. You know, as a stand up, you're always a little like padding your resume always I swear to god like Chris Rock probably pads his like you're always like trying to declare yourself kind of legitimate and so when people would ask how long I did it I would always just from the time of like five years I would always be like oh about a decade Mm -hmm. and um I always felt kind of self-conscious because you know like I never really went through like kind of the wishy-washy open mic period most people went through Mm -hmm. where they're like starting but you don't know if you're Mm -hmm. you're going to be good enough like because I was uh going through divorce and I was a single mom and I didn't have a career I really was just like, all right, I'm being a comedian. And I went from open mics to being a feature in like two months. Like I just, yeah. And it was just because I had had some storytelling experience. So it's not like I had no stage time at all, but um, I really was just like, okay, I have to make this a job and it has to pay me. So I really like kind of just from the very beginning, I was fudging my way into Mm -hmm. stuff that I was like, already you know a year in I was like I've been doing this five years and uh you know was always kind of fudging my way into stuff and sort of seat of my pantsing it so yeah seems to have worked out (laughs) it absolutely has and uh, yeah I mean it was you just really hit the ground running yeah yeah I did you know I um I kind of got lucky I was I was at an open mic competition where um David Tribble, who does the Tribble runs, which were a big thing out West. Um, he was doing auditions and anybody could audition. And um, I had one of those times where you just like have a set that's beyond your actual talent level. Mm-hmm. And um, I like did really well. And he was like, okay, yeah, you're signed up to be a, a feature. And 
So I started making money pretty quick. And then I got, um, I'm very, I'm very charming. And so when headliners would come through, I would just, um, just lay it on, you know, and I think being a mom helped too. like, um, you know, I, a lot of times headliners, and now that I'm a headliner too, you get it. Like the feature, the feature and the host are always kind of like razzle dazzling you, hoping to get picked up to take, get taken on the road. And you're like, Oh honey, I don't have the money to do that for you. But, um, I, I think, but they're also, also, you know, usually pretty young. They're like 22, you know, but I was 30 and I was like adult an adult and, you know, sober and a mom and was able to just like have a conversation with a headliner that was about like kids and adult responsibilities instead of just being like, you know, a nervous actor, like a nervous host or a nervous feature. Like I was able to just be like an adult, you know? And I think that that got me booked a lot of times as I was able Mm -hmm. to just kind of be like, ah, I got to get home. I got these kids. And people would be like, oh, you must've been doing comedy for a while because you're a grown woman, you know? And (laughs) so I just kind of was able to fudge through that too. That's interesting. You know, I, I wonder, and you've probably been asked this before, but did the fact that you were going through a divorce when you were starting out did that help generate material too um not not really i guess because i have always been pretty careful to not talk about my ex a ton Mm -hmm. i always felt like i have a few times like i have a couple jokes about him like one that's very very tame i had one joke about him in the very beginning which i still stand by it's a pretty solid joke but um i just always felt like it wasn't fair to to talk about him a whole lot because i felt like it's a, like in a divorce, you both need to have your stories. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. most of the conflict in a divorce comes from you, like each person trying to change what the other person's story is. And you mm-hmm. just kind of need to be like, fine, that's what you're going with, whatever, even if it pisses you off or it's lies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I felt like it was sort of unfair. Cause like here I had these audience, this audience of like thousands of people who are already on my side. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas he just had, you know, a handful of people who I don't know. I just always in front of a bunch of people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I just always felt like, and when I would hear comics bash their ex, I would always feel like, like, I, you know, Mm -hmm. sometimes it is funny, but sometimes it is like, especially if you have kids together, I would always be like, I don't want my, my kids to hear. I don't personally talk to my kids about their dad that way. And I never wanted them to hear me on an album or on a podcast, like shit talking their dad. Uh, which is, you know, can be a fine line because at the same time, I want to be honest about my experience with stuff. But so I've always kind of grappled with like how much is okay to talk about as far as your experience and how much is. And I guess for some reason for me, I just always decided like making him a part of my act just didn't seem kosher for some reason. Yeah. The only times I feel like it can work to talk about an ex is if they did something really bad. But if it's oh, a yeah, that happens because it's because breakups happen. It isn't fair to just be like, well, here's my story and I'm not going to give them a chance to defend themselves. Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, like, cause like we had, we had a really messy ending, you know, and there was bad things that happened. And, but I guess I just sort of, I don't know, I guess for me, because there were kids involved, it felt different. That's the other thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 to me, I'm, I'm too get an icky feeling if somebody is bad mouthing their ex-spouse when their kid can read that in the you know the magazine or newspaper yeah. or hear that in a podcast it's like why would you put your kid in that position 
Yeah. Cause it's like, if it's just me and it, I probably, if I didn't have kids, maybe I would have felt comfortable talking about him, but mm-hmm. you know, when there's kids involved, I always just felt like I, I want him to, because maybe also cause I have sons and I know that sons relate to their dad so hard. And I had read this book on divorce about like how a lot of times sons will feel like if their mom hates the dad, that they hate this male part of them as well. Mm-hmm. So I guess I maybe just wanted to always make sure my kids didn't feel like I hated their dad, even though I, you know, I went through, I don't think, I don't know if I ever hated him. I was really mad at him for a very long time. Um, But I, I always tried to let my kids feel the energy from me that even though I was angry at him, I still cared for him and still loved him and still wanted the best for him. Mm. So I guess my comedy didn't, I didn't know how to make that funny. (laughs) Right. Right. That's yeah. I see what you're, it sounds you know, it reminds me a lot of you talking about your mom and how thoughtful she was about you. You're doing mm-hmm. the same thing with your children, which is very sweet. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I guess, you know, maybe I've done this and I actually probably have done the same thing my mom did because my mom was also very neutral when she and my biological father split. She was always tried very hard to be nice about it. But like that dude was a monster. And honestly, as a kid, I could have used some backup of like, he's a piece of shit. You're right to hate him. So I, you know, it's, I'm, I have sometimes worried, maybe I've done that to my own kids where like, they haven't had the backup of being like, yeah, no, he sucks. It's okay to be mad at him for that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. although I do like if, you know, if they are like, oh my God, dad's a liar. I'll be like, well, you know, your dad does sometimes struggle with the truth. <laughs> you know, try to be like neutral about it while also confirming it's so hard. It's so complicated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so oh, I guess yeah. I just never wanted to like throw comedy on top of trying to be an adult and a good co-parent and a good mom. You know, it was all the, com- the divorce was so complicated and so hard and so heartbreaking and yeah. um, so pro- prolonged too. It took us like two years to get divorced yeah. it was just one of those where you're like man we were separated for a long time and it was just such a mess and I think it just was never funny to me you know yeah. like it just took a lot of years for me to finally like be able to to be in a place where it was like I could laugh about it and be like mm-hmm. ah we were just you know a couple of kids working through our trauma <laughs> you know like <laughs> I see what you mean yeah and, and that stress didn't interrupt so to speak any your creativity for some people maybe even myself if i was going through something like that i mean when i've been uh, down it it helped me to do stand up but there I, I i do think there are people who uh if they were going through something that's stressful it would be hard for them to hit the ground running like you were and 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 go out and perform and create I think that, you know how like a lot of times when somebody goes through a breakup, they already have like a new man lined up or a new woman lined up or whatever. Uh And like, so it's like they never really go through the heartbreak of the breakup because they already have like a new relationship. And honestly, I think stand up was that for me for a long time. Mm -hmm. Like I was in the honeymoon phase of stand up at the same time. I was like losing my house and my kids were heartbroken and I, my, you know, like my ex had just gone completely off the deep end and we were not seeing him for months at a time or hearing from him. And, you know, I like, while all of this personally, all of this heartbreak was happening, I was like sort of falling in love with comedy and falling in love, honestly, with myself too, at the same time, like really like comedy is sort of like, I was this very, uh, you know, I was a housewife before and, and 
we had a pretty traditional, it's surprising now, but we had a pretty traditional, you know, marriage and tradi- I don't want to even say traditional. We had a very patriarchal, uh, we had a very patriarchal marriage. And, you know, so I think like, it was sort of like helping me find myself. And so at the, I, I don't think I'm, it really like, I don't think I really paid attention to, I don't, I didn't miss him. You know what I mean? Like I was so excited to be free and so excited to be on my own and to have my kids on my own. And I was so excited to be a single mom and so like, so into stand up and just like falling deeply in love with it. And so I don't, I think for a long time it didn't, I did, I think, I don't think I really mourned my divorce until a few years ago when I finally like had enough like financial and emotional space to, to, it was when I went through another breakup and I finally was like, oh, that relationship really was like just sort of the end of my first relationship. You know, it was the end of my marriage just extended through another person, which I think happens when you don't mourn something properly. Mm-hmm. And um, so it didn't um, it didn't stall it for a long time. But it's funny because I I don't really I like like I said, because I do these phases of like rest and like work, Mm -hmm. I don't usually feel stalled. Like I haven't written, I hadn't written in joke during COVID for a long time. And I've been like, but I've just kind of been like, yeah, that's okay. You know, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's not, uh, it's not super funny right now. And it's kind of sad. And like, I've just recently kind of started to feel that muscle starting to flex again. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I think I've always kind of gone in and out of like sometimes I'll, I also like my writing, I think I write comedy differently than a lot of people. Like I won't write a joke for a long time. And then in a half hour, I'll write an hour, an hour of comedy. Like I'll sit down and be like, Oh my God. And another thought and another thought, like mm-hmm. that is that sort of like mania depression thing. But yeah. it's like, I, I will only write for like a half hour, you know, once every three months, but then I spend like a three months honing and figuring stuff out. So, yeah. I think that's one of the things that's really jumping out at me. And it's, something along the lines of what we were talking about before about knowing yourself, but I think also giving yourself the space to not be guilty, like you were saying earlier, and also to really be present is very crucial. I I bet it's harder to sit down for 30 minutes and write so much if you're not being present in that moment. So yeah. Uh, it sounds like you have or if you're worried, you know, I think it's easy to uh-huh. get like when you're in a dry spell, whether mm-hmm. it's writing or painting or write, you know, jokes or just any sort of creativity, it can get like you'll be in this like place where you're not creative. And I think it can start to feel like panicky for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, I've really just learned when I'm in that dry spell to be like, that's totally normal. You know, it's not like Da Vinci was every second of every day creating. Like (laughs) sometimes you're creating, sometimes you're honing, sometimes you're resting, sometimes you're dicking off. Yeah. Um, Like sometimes you're having fun too. Like I think everything, I think a lot of times when I don't feel like making something, I'll be like, cool. That means it's time for you to observe. And I'll like, make sure that I'm out in nature a lot and I'll observe a lot of nature or I'll go and like sit in crowds of people and just sort of like, listen to the cadences of people's voice and you know like i think yeah it's just kind of sometimes it's i think it's important to if you're feeling that if you're feeling like i can't create i can't create it's like well that's because that's it's like that little fairy or whatever is not on your shoulder right now so you need to walk around and and go just be a part of your actual world oh i love that you're saying this it also reminds me of something a previous guest posted on youtube she's a singer songwriter and she did a video uh, for her YouTube page that was 
she w- for a week she followed the daily routine of Beethoven. And oh, there was cool. a lot of his day. It was pretty cool. There was a lot of his day that was just like, I guess just dicking around is the best way to put it. Because he would just get up and sort of like splash his hands in the water and hum. And then he'd like <laughs> I take love a that. walk. Yeah. He'd like go take a walk to the pub mm-hmm. and just hang out with friends. And that was like a daily activity. And I think, and it's just because different people maybe in fact how uh, they think on other people and other types of thinkers. But I think people don't feel the freedom to do stuff like that, especially in America where it's like, you got to work hard, then you can play hard. But in all honesty, not everybody, not everyone's brain works that that way. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah. We're not all hedge fund managers, you know? Right. I feel like that is, there's that has infected I've I've been thinking this for a while because like we're sort of watching this, you know, weird thing in our society happen right now where you're like, okay, we have this we've every society has always had this billionaire class. And under them it, you know, becomes this stratosphere of like a mix of the working poor, the tradespeople, and the artisans who we all serve the billionaire class. We all do. It's just the way things have always been. And the billionaires are better or worse at any given time. And I've always felt like Um, And I have hung out with a lot of rich people and I have been like the, you know, like poor that they walk around and like, look, I brought a poor to this party. Mm -hmm. And, um, and rich people are not any happier than the rest of us. Like, it's not like money fixes any of this shit. It's just, I, I've always felt like being an artist is this beautiful sweet spot in Mm -hmm. society that if you're living it right, like can, can be sort of like, you know, you, you get to just splash your hand in the water and hum, you know, like you get to be like, this is part of my day. This is part of my process because like, I think, you know, you can't have a, um, I know some, some writers are like, I write, I get up at six and I write from 7am to 5pm and it's a day job. And I'm always like, ew, why would you do that? Why? Like I always loved Ursula Gwynn's schedule where she like gets up, she lays in bed for an hour thinking stupid thoughts. She has some breakfast. She writes for three hours from noon to five, she sees friends or gardens. And then from 5 p.m. on, it says, I'm not very useful from the from these hours till morning. And I just love that. Like the idea that you're like, you're not supposed to be useful. That's not why you're here. You know, like I think if you're if that's what you feel like you're here for, that's gotta be exhausting. Like yeah. I I feel like, I mean, to some degree, I do feel like you should be useful to your fellow human beings. I do think that that's true, but I don't think that that's what hedge fund managers think of when they work something else totally 75 hours a week, you know? And so I love that idea of like my day is kind of often, I mean, I have three kids and we're homeschooling. And so, you know, there's a lot more structure to that and stuff. But a lot of times my day is filled with like, you know, take a walk, look at leaves, um, you know, listen to the sounds of traffic, you know, like I try to like do a lot of things that maybe seem pointless, but sort of just ground me into back into my body and, you know, re- kind of remind me where I'm at actually in time and space and, you know, just kind of like, I don't know, slow down. I've always been a, I'm a very busy, I have a hummingbird energy and I'm always trying to like slow it down, take mm-hmm. it, take it a little smoother. So Yeah. I'm really encouraged by you saying all of that. Yeah, I, I think it's a healthier way to live for all of us, you know? <laughs> I, do too. I Honestly, when I've worked 
on just one thing all day and, you know, got it done. I didn't feel as accomplished at the end of that day as one of the days where I worked on a few different things that, you know, if I like bounced around between a few different projects or activities that I want to engage with, then I feel like I've had a productive day. And I also feel like you were saying like more grounded in my body and who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And I've had days where like, I'm like working on a project and I'm really like, you know, I get that like ADHD brain where I just sink Mm -hmm. into something and then I'm like, oh, I haven't eaten or gone to the bathroom or exactly what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that can be really satisfying too, as long as you're like, you're loving, you're like really finding that, that groove of the project, you know, that can be really good too. But it also, I think like you, if you're doing that every single day, day after day, then your body suffers. And it's so easy to forget, like you, that's it. You are your body. Like we mm-hmm. do suffer such a separation <laughs> yeah. in our culture of like mind and body, but like right. I, being sick this last year has been a good reminder of like, oh yeah, this is, this is it. This is the one you get. Mm-hmm. And it, so it's funny. Cause I think weirdly being chronically ill is, has been this like amazing thing for me to be like, some days I cannot do anything. I can barely get out of bed and I'm so, so in so much pain and so, so sick that I like cannot do anything. And it's enough to be like, I just got to be able to keep some food down and, you know, to be able to feel. And if I try to push that, my old MO would have been to like, work through that and try to push it. My body is like not having any of that. Like it will just, instead of one day I'll be down for three or four. So it's really sort of forced me to be like, when I'm starting to have a bad day to just like rest and watch Pride and Prejudice and, you know, eat an apple and (laughs) kind of focus on, on feeling good. And I think if we all just spent a little more time focusing on feeling good Mm -hmm. instead of everything else, if it was just like, no, you know, in the mornings from nine to 11, I focus on feeling good. Like, what do I need, you know, or whatever time of day that works for people, you know? I totally love that because it, it really does speak to everything you've been saying of being present and knowing where you're at. And it, it, for me, when I have tried to say like, okay, every day at this time, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. then I'm really setting myself up to feel guilty when I miss that. Because the reality is something comes up or something else just needs to take precedence. And, you know, I didn't think it would take as long as it did, but it is taking as long as it's going to take. And I have to focus on that thing instead of what's on the calendar. And so I just end up feeling guilty. And then that makes me feel like I'm not being productive. And that makes, that slows me down from being, uh, accomplishing anything I want to do. And it's just bogging my mind down. So I really need to uh, take the approach that you're taking and say like, okay, this is where my head and and where my body are at today. And yeah. I just need to recognize that and act appropriately. It's really helped my writing so much to do that because, you know, I when I would be working on a chapter of the book, I could try to force that as many times as I wanted. You know, I would, I for a long time would be like, you know, I would do the button chair thing. Like if you're not going to write, if your butt's not in the chair and mm-hmm. I would write this thing out and write it out and write it out and write it out. And um, I finally realized like, I get just as much from taking a bath, mm-hmm. from going for a walk, you know, that like eventually the idea that I was trying to force out um, like I had been working for a while on this really difficult chapter 
um, that was about like doing mushrooms and like coming to terms with mortality and all of this stuff. And I kept like struggling with it and I could never get the tone of it right. I rewrote it. Like one of those times where you restructure it, like the end is the beginning. The beginning is the end. What if you start in the middle? Like just could never get it. And eventually I just was like, I started to have this realization that like if that every time I've done that, it's taken me twice as long to write the thing than if I just like write a paragraph, go for a walk, noodle it, come back, you know, like if I just kind of like let myself chew it a lot more before trying to swallow it, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that seems to have been helping. And I do write, like I write quite a bit, but I, I've just started to do it like I think we've gotten away from like the muse in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of like Chuck Wendig is one of those writers who's like, you know, you sit down, you do 1500 words a day, butt and chair. And I, I read his book, you know, when I was a young writer, I actually started in fiction. I started writing fiction when I was 18. Oh. I've written a bunch of fiction books. I was really like sure I was going to be a fiction writer. Um, and I, I really subscribed to that mentality for a long time. And then as I've gotten older, I've kind of realized like, it's okay to be, maybe you're that kind of writer, dope. Like maybe you're Brandon Sanderson and you write 40,000 words a week and you have every one of your books is a thousand pages long. That's dope. For me, I am one of those writers that like, I have to be in the right place. Mm -hmm. Like to find exactly what I want to say, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like standup where like you'll have 10 sets and one of those is the one that you wanted, Mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, the other ones were eights and nines, but then every once in a while you either have a one or a 10, you know, <laughs> like, I think like those are, those are like, it's okay to like, to, to be struck by lightning and to like cultivate that, but also just be like, yeah, it doesn't just fucking happen. Like the beautiful creative thing that, that we want to be part well, I want to be part of my work to be special and not just more um, drudgery, you know, mm-hmm. like when did art become drudgery? I hate it. I yeah. hate it. I don't, they were supposed to be like mystical. I think it's because the conservatives have taken over everything and they're like artists, artists for queers and they hate queers and they hate art. And all of those of us who are queer and artists have been like, since we were kids mm-hmm. bullied and beaten up for being who we are. And so we're always trying to be like normal, a citizens mm-hmm. who do an eight to five and capitalism. Yeah. And just a role in that. Yeah. And instead I'm like, I don't even care about any of that stuff. I just want to like mm-hmm. raise bees and dicker, <laughs> like go and lay a smoke a little pot on the weekends and look at trees <laughs> and do some really deep writing about what I believe, like, I, like humanity is about and mortality and all like those things are what I think it being an artist is about is like feeling the conscious collective, you know, mm-hmm. being a part of something mystical and bigger than what we are. And, you know, comedy, people shit on it and they're like, comedy is not an art. Well, I'm sorry, but it clearly is. It clearly <laughs> it's is. like, yeah. it's clearly an art and it's clearly philosophy. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, you have people out there doing one liners and that's art too. Sorry. It's all fucking art. And <laughs> everybody wants to be like, tough Joe Rogan, you know, conservative libertarian assholes about it. But like at the end of the day, we're working a couple hours a night. Most of us are pretty mentally ill mm-hmm. and pretty neuroatypical. And I'm, I'm ready for, you know, I don't know. I feel like we've spent so long as a society sort of like letting this minority of like very unhappy, uncreative assholes determine what our society looks like, what our laws are, what our days look like. How we should talk to people, yeah. 
Yeah. Like that fuck your feelings thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like that is like, I've always felt like that is this like nugget of truth about what our society is. Fuck your feelings. And mm-hmm. like, that's who those people are. And the rest of us need to be like, no, actually fuck your feelings. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and well, to I- say... To stand up for ourselves. Yeah, I totally agree. And I've long been annoyed with the attitude of, uh, or not the attitude, but the adjustment that society makes to the dumbest thoughts, you know, where it's like, okay, all these people are screaming about something, but they are wrong. They are factually wrong, or they are being really stupid about this. We can't dumb things down so that they can get on board. We have to lift them up. Or yeah. just, or it's just survival of the fittest at some point, but the I hate this, and it, I I really think it's another one of those big problems in society is just how dumbed down things are, and now people can have their own set of facts, and they don't have to go by what experts say. Yeah, it's just what's what they feel, their gut feeling, and I and, and I it, think you you mentioned Joe Rogan, and sometimes he's saying what we're saying. And sometimes he's saying something that's sort of antithetical. And I'm like, well, what, what is it, Joe Rogan? Yeah. <laughs> what side are you going to be on with this? Because you yeah. can't tell Candace Owens that she has to, like, be malleable to her, her uh, with her opinions and actually look at facts and let that guide you. Or, and then with some other situation, sort of pick and choose what facts you're going to And then let a flat earther come on, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't fully, I've always watched the Rogan, Brian Callen, you know, fighter and the kid stuff kind of from the outside of like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm raising sons. I feel like I'm pretty immersed in masculinity. Um, I have brothers, you know, like. I feel like I have a pretty good handle on masculinity and none of the men are like that in my life. None mm-hmm. of the men. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, like, just like, you know, the fuck your feelings, people have sort of taken over everything. Like the, the Rogan-esque, you know, mentality has sort of taken over artistically taken over comedy mm-hmm. and, and, and taken over masculinity in a big way. And um, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I, I've never really understood the appeal other than it just kind of seems like when you were in high school and mm-hmm. like, uh, like there were a bunch of jocks in the hall and your <laughs> friend who was usually nice to you as you walked back, all of a sudden walked by or all of a sudden pushed you into a locker uh-huh. because you're just like, oh, he doesn't want to get beat up by these guys. So he's going <laughs> to so beat the shit out of me, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I, I, I think you are probably around more of that than I would. So I can't really point to it. I've never gotten a good vibe from Brian Callen, so I've just never paid any attention to him. And I feel yeah, like I only I'm, use him as an example just because he's so in the news right now. Right you know, now, like but there are a lot of people like that, and people like that have that vibe are going on Rogan. Not yeah. everyone on Rogan is like that, but I just mean those are the comics that roll with Rogan, and I just mm-hmm. generally don't pay attention to them. But you probably well, see them more if you're I, like, yeah. touring. You know. <laughs> Well, and like that. And like, you know, it's funny because people are always like, yeah, that's an L.A. thing. And I'm like, no, New York has its own brand of bro comedy stuff that's going been going on for years. Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. It's a yeah. I I feel like encouraged by I mean, that's why I started the festivals was because every time you would complain about 
sort of this bro culture and this like toxic masculinity in comedy, men would just be like, well, if you don't like it, start your own shit. And so I finally was just like, fine, I will, <laughs> you know? And it yeah. wasn't cause I like had this like burning desire to be in front of things. In fact, I think honestly running the festivals has kind of hurt my career because people just assume that if you're running a show or you're running a room or if you're running a festival, it's because you're not funny. So I feel like it's also really set me apart. I think with comics, a lot of times is like you're a booker instead of a comic, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I've just sort of seen that in like relationships I've had with, you know, like just not like friendships, but just like professional relationships I've had with people where you're like, oh, this person sees me as a booker, not yeah. as a peer, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I felt like I wanted to set, I don't know, I just felt like I wanted there to be somewhere safe. You know, mm -hmm. like I had been to so many festivals where you, you'd be harassed and it would just suck, you know, and you or you'd have to, you, you know, you'd be there and you'd have to be on a podcast where everybody was just trash talking women the whole time and just mm -hmm. being homophobic and racist. And if you're like, uh, this is stupid. Like, I remember I did a festival in Nashville once and I was on stage with Ralphie and um, who everybody seems to love. And I don't really understand that. And um. he's one of those guys like. What's it, uh, May? Yeah. Is that the one who passed away? Yeah. And everybody, yeah. after he died, all of a sudden you couldn't critique him anymore. And it was kind of like, y'all. I thought that was interesting, too, the way it would seem like the almost like the week before people were like, he did this shit, he did that, and he's terrible, yeah. and then he passed away, and everything was like, ah, oh, going to miss him. And I'm like, I never I know. heard anyone talk positively about him. No, and he, you know, and he also would he had say the N word. So you constantly, know like, I don't yeah. give two shits about him. I never liked him either because of stuff like that. No, and I, I was on a show. It was a game show. He, it was a roast uh, beforehand that we didn't get. We weren't told what it was. It was a roast of Ralphie May, me, and like four other comics, and we, it was us against Ralphie. And I was like, it was his crowd, and I was like, no, thank you. Yeah, but we got into it, and he like he was being so sexist and so racist and used the N word and was just being awful. And I remember just being like, I don't, why I, if I stand up right now and I'm like, fuck this, like my career will suffer. Ralphie's won't, you know, right. I'll get probably in trouble with the festival. I'll probably not be booked back here again at this mm -hmm. club, you know? And it was so frustrating. And I remember just being like, I'm done with this. I'm done. I'm not doing festivals where I feel like I can't be treated like a person and that, you know, asking to be treated like a professional is going to get me fired. So, right. you know, I've, that, I've kept up a little bit with, you know, when you've called out stuff like that um, and I've appreciated it even, I think you even tweeted not so long ago about um, Bill Maher saying something uh, oh yeah. You know, like, you know what? It's funny. People were so mad at me for not like telling that full story. And they're like, show the receipts, you know, tell us what he said. Do you all, you know, and I was like, I hate about Twitter. It's like, I know. And I'm like, Bill Maher is incredibly litigious and he has a zillion times more money than me. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not going after Bill Maher. Right. Like I'm not going to lose, uh, lose my car because I'm right, going right. to go after. But what I can say is I spent a week in uh, Hawaii with Bill Maher, with several other comics. Mm -hmm. And I have never been around anyone who was a bigger piece of shit in my entire life. Wow. And I was raised around a bunch of drunk piece of shit rednecks, you know, mm -hmm. like 
he was so sexist and so racist and so trans transphobic and yeah. regularly used the n-word regularly used slurs like just and it was wild because so there were five comics but he rolls with like a posse mm-hmm. and he has like a whole bunch of people and we were um kind of hopping from island to island doing this stuff and um it was such a mix of like this like really amazing trip that I would have never gotten to go on. Like we flew on private jets. Uh, we I did a New Year's Eve at Eddie Vedder's house. It was bananas. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the whole time I was just like, I, this is, I was so shocked by how like the people, the people in his group, I would be like, do you hear what he's saying to Margaret Cho? Like everybody's sort of just putting up with it and laughing about it or like the things he would say behind people's back and things he was saying about strangers. We went to a strip club and I was just like, it was just so disgusting to be with him. And the the people in his friend group, I was like, how do you, like they seemed like decent people at the time. And I was like, how do you juggle this? Mm -hmm. You know, like one of the guys had a trans daughter and I was like, how do you juggle what he is saying about trans people and then having a daughter and like, I don't know. It was a really surreal experience. And, you know, it was very strange to have like these other people I respect who are kind of just tolerating his behavior because mm-hmm. that's comedy. That's what comedy has been is like, yeah, it's, is it just a lot of people uh, kissing ass or, or at least not rocking the boat? So yeah, their career doesn't get affected. You know, I think like Margaret Cho is one of my favorite comics and I think she's a she's wonderful a, she's person. A legend, yeah. She's a legend. She's an amazing person getting to spend a week with her. Like I'm not a starstruck person, but, mm. and I, I wasn't like, you know, giddy around her or anything, but I was really like, this is fucking ridiculous that yeah. I just get to like hang out with her. And she was so kind and lovely the whole time. And, um, and I've, you know, I've since then seen her on shows and been around her more, but it's, but at that time I was really just like, holy fucking Margaret fucking show. And she like, he was being racist and shitty. And I think honestly, it's just like, you know, telling Bill Maher to stop it isn't going to stop him. So I think you do just as comics, we do just sort of get like, whatever. I just like, I'm here to do a job. I don't have to try and change this person. Um, I think it's easy to just sort of, especially for older comics who kind of like, you know, God knows what Margaret put up with. I know what I put up with. And I know that it was probably better than what Margaret put up with, you know, like, I think like knowing, knowing the shit that like people have, I don't know. I just, I felt like she, like her and and Dana Gould and some of the other people were just kind of like, ah, it's Bill, you know, you're not going to change Bill. And it's like, Mm -hmm. for me, it was like, I was after that. Like I'm never working with, even, even if I was desperate for the money, um, <laughs> I'm never working with Bill Maher again. I was like, yeah. that was it for me. Anytime his name has come up, I've always been like, he is trash. He's a terrible person. Mm. And it was upsetting to me to be with 20 other people who yeah. also knew he was a terrible person who were all just kind of like, that's Bill, yeah. you know? And I was just like, mm. I, I have always, you know, I, maybe it's me. Maybe I've always just been kind of a black and white person that way. And I don't, I'm not very but, bendable. Yeah. You know? um, but it's, I'm with you. I don't know how I'd be able to stomach that. Um, I mean, you just want to, you would just want to get away from it, you know? Yeah. Like that's, it was wow. funny. It was funny to see though. I think one thing about that is like, I've also never met anyone as miserable as Bill Maher. He seems like, like yeah. genuinely, like we were out in the ocean in mm-hmm. Hawaii it's this beautiful, perfect day. We're bobbing up and down. There are whales like 
150 yards from us. We're watching them spout. We're just like bobbing up and down. There's a group of us. There's a like, it's, it's like 20 of the like coolest people I've ever met, like showrunners and just like mm-hmm. people that are like so funny. And you're like, you made, oh my God, that's my favorite. And like, I was, for me, I was just like, oh, this is so cool to be in this beautiful place with these talented people. And I remember just like, and there was a rainbow and we were all just like, oh, all of us were just like, oh, this is so spiritual. What an amazing moment. And then right then Bill Mars swims over and he goes, this is fucking ridiculous. What a fucking, there's no waves. We can't body surf. I fucking hate Hawaii. And I was like, this is this guy's whole deal. Like he hates everyone and everything and he's never going to be happy. So I guess, you know, at the end of the day, I guess enjoy the rest of your years being racist and miserable. Oof. Yeah, people don't need to look up to that guy. Um, <laughs> um, you mentioned, uh, I know uh, this is a, there's no segue. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been a segue comic, so hit me. <laughs> right. Um, I do want to talk about your festivals because you've sure. started a couple of very popular ones, 208 Fest and Comedy Fort. Uh, now, 208 you did there was it was in September of 2019 was the last time it was up mm-hmm. yeah uh, and comedy for it postponed till next September yeah and I should say um so I'm uh no longer with tree fort I'm not okay. doing comedy for it this year last year I just decided um I was just like I have I had been so busy and mm-hmm. I was just like I don't really feel like putting my time and energy mm-hmm. into someone else's thing anymore you know like I had already left them which then weirdly like turned out to be sort of prophetic because it was like uh I left comedy for it and then we had decided not to do 208 in 2020 we were gonna Mm. take a year off and maybe be done we hadn't decided yet but we had decided to take the year off for Mm -hmm. sure so then luckily I hadn't put into this like nine months of work into two festivals because they both got canceled so Mm -hmm. um but yeah I mean I, I'm very, very glad I did those. They were a huge amount of work and, um, you know, really amazing and satisfying. And for me, it was, it was so cool because I was able to bring in a lot of people who like, I think have been mistreated in other parts of comedy and to just be able to be like, our thing was always like, we fed everybody. We made sure they had a safe environment. We made sure they got in front of like really fun crowds and we just tried to do really really hard to like take care of everybody and be really good to them and like to remind comics because I think you know it can you can start to feel like a raccoon out there you know like you get treated like shit and nobody seems you know like a lot of times at festivals like there's no green room there's no food I you know (laughs) and so I just really wanted to like make an environment where comics felt like loved and appreciated and like the last nice. 208 was so amazing and people afterward the last day people were crying and they were like I feel like it's the last day of camp and that was what I always wanted was I wanted it to feel like camp I wanted it to feel like mm-hmm. where like you made all these new friends and I always wanted to get rid of the stratification of like you know famous comics and not famous comics I always was like throwing people into situations where like there were ways to be social and kind of let go of that like mm-hmm. I feel like it can be so clicky in comedy, which is one of my least favorite things about it. And mm-hmm. to, to remind people that like, hey, you were an opener who was excited to meet a headliner, like maybe give that energy back, you know? And mm-hmm. um, I feel like we did a really, really good job with the festivals. And if we were done, I'm fine. I'm done, I think, honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. We've kind of, we had talked back in um, the fall, or I guess like the spring about doing 208 again and had decided to take the year off and, um 
we haven't talked about doing another one. Like we haven't been like, well, we got to get started for 2021. I think we both were kind of like, that was super cool. I don't know for sure if we won't, we won't do it again. It's possible. We might, you know, Mm -hmm. in another six months be like, hell yeah, let's get it together. But it was, you know, I ran both of those with my ex-boyfriend and we had broken up during the first festival, like, Mm -hmm. oh, two weeks before the first festival. And we ran them for three years together. Also, you know, running two a year is a lot. Two a year was a lot. Yeah, (laughs) it was. It was so much work. And I, you know, I had to put a lot of my own career stuff on hold because I was like working on that stuff and trying to, you know, trying to get the logistics figured out. And um, it definitely was, it was a huge energy suck. Like after the festival, I'd always just be like a wreck for two weeks. Like it was just so, it it was always a joke. Like I always cry at family comedy festivals. I do not know why. It is just like, I get overwhelmed. There's so much happening. I always cry. But at my own festival, I would always keep it together until Sunday night, right after the last show. And then I would just sob hysterically, like four years running. So I don't know. I kind of want really you want to take a break then. <laughs> yeah, my whole body would just be like, it's done. It was just like, it's also so much pressure and so much yeah. fear because the whole time it's like, you know, how you when you throw a party, you're like, no one's going to come. Yeah. And you're just like terrified something's going to go wrong. It's that but for like five days and right. just constant fires you're putting out and like mm-hmm. little things that go wrong. Like, I was so mad at Tree Fort a couple last year at Tree Fort at uh, Comedy Fort. Um, the comics here, the local comics, took all the comics to this racist breakfast place in the morning. And I was like, when I texted and was like, "Hey, where is everybody at for breakfast?" They were like, "We're at Big City Coffee." And I was like, "What the fuck?" Like, I've I've diver- booked this very diverse festival. I've assured all these out of town yeah. comics like this is a very safe place. I know Idaho has a reputation. Boise is very liberal, except for this one coffee shop, you know, like um, I was so there was like little stuff like that that would go wrong that would drive me crazy. But, you know, it was it was definitely there were always these moments in it where like like last year, Maria Bamford was our headliner and she was like she was doing her new hour, which um, uh, Weakness is the brand is now that album. And it's mm-hmm. the best hour of comedy I ever saw. And I got to see it like in this unique spot where I was like watching the crowd and watching her from this corner. And it was so cool. And I cried through the whole set because I was just Mm -hmm. so moved because she like really gets into mental illness stuff. And Mm -hmm. it was so powerful. And it's such a good hour. It was like why I became a comedian just to be like that right fucking there. And Mm -hmm. it was so cool to have brought her, you know, and to have had my, she's my idol and to have her like headline my festival and, you know, um, to be like, you know, to, to know her, to be friends with her, to be just like, you know, a peer is just so fucking like beautiful. Like it was such a beautiful moment to watch her do this hour. And uh, yeah, so I'll miss moments like that, but I will not miss not sleeping for five days or two weeks or three weeks or however long that was. And yeah, it was a lot of work. It is. I tell you. And there's <laughs> the person who runs. Uh, well, I won't say what fest uh it's a it's a big fest in the country and uh he was saying that he he kind of feels like a it's not really a festival if it's not in multiple venues and i'm like oh boy you are putting on a lot of pressure on your yeah. lot of headaches on yourself but we always did five we did five at least um different yeah. venues and it was um so. i would always every year i would lose my big toenails from walking so much oh wow because i would be running back and forth between venues the whole time just like 
And the last year I was like, this is ridiculous. You need to delegate this. You're being absurd. But it was because I would be so terrified that the show wasn't going well or what if the audience isn't good and what if the sound is bad? So I would I would be like, you're not going over there. And then I'd be like, I'm just going to pop in really fast. Mm-hmm. And so I would run back and forth to all the venues just to check on stuff. And um, <laughs> yeah, I would always end up losing my my big toenail would always turn black and fall off right wow. after the festival because I would be running around so much. Wow. <laughs> blood sweat and tears yeah Literally. exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> well um i wish we could talk for forever but we Me too i feel yes. like we've this has been a great talk but i feel like we've scratched the surface here um but it's now the end of the episode to create something together okay and the thing that i'm picking up is your vulnerability you're vulnerable on stage but i feel like you're vulnerable off stage and and even your idol being maria bamford she's a very vulnerable performer Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm curious to pick your brain at and maybe that's how we can create something it's just like talking out how one can take that leap and be vulnerable in their comedy yeah, I think, you know, it's funny. I get that note all the time. Um, that's always what people say about my comedy. And I always have therapists come up afterward and they'll be like, oh my God, I'm a therapist and I've never seen anything so vulnerable in my life. And I used to always be like, that's why it's killing me, you know, <laughs> it's because it's like, it was so, a lot of times my sets would feel so vulnerable. But um, it's interesting because um, I I always got that from people. And I think it's, it's weirdly like... It never, it never really felt vulnerable to me until very recent. Um, I think that like, for me, what felt vulnerable, like where other people would feel vulnerable, mine, my level of that was like way higher. Like I I wasn't even, we weren't even too vulnerable that people are like, oh my God, your stuff is so vulnerable. And I'm like, we're not even there. And this is just who I am. Yeah. I think, well, I think like, um, I think, you know, okay. So like how people deal with trauma, right. Is fight flight, freeze, or fawn. Mm -hmm. And I think my way always since I I was a kid of being, of like dealing with the world was I just kind of just always was like guts out. Like I I feel like how I always dealt with the world was by by being like all in because I, I felt like I don't know. I guess I've always kind of felt like the worst thing that's ever happened to me has already happened, you know, and I've always kind of felt like, like all, if I'm not, if I'm honest and I'm just all the way in and I just sort of tell people who I am, there's sort of no, there's no, I I don't, I don't know how to describe it exactly. I guess right now I feel like um, if I'm just honest and I just tell you what I'm thinking and I tell you who I am and I tell you where I'm at, then if people attack that, that's their problem. Mm -hmm. You know, if people are mad about it or they're angry or they're sad, I don't have to then like, I'm, I'm a big fan of criticism, constructive criticism. And I love, I actually love notes. I take notes really like, well, but like, I can always tell when somebody has something that's like, Hey, actually maybe like you're being, um, you know, you're being privileged or you're being ableist or you're being a bitch, you know, or maybe you came at that too hot versus like, I don't like you. Mm -hmm. I don't like you as a person. I don't like where you're coming from. And I feel like if, if you're just you and you know who that person is and you present it accurately, mm-hmm. then when someone doesn't like it, you can just be like, oh, that's fine, dude. That's totally fine. Because like, then we're just not for each other because there's right. no, 
there's no like insecurity of kind of having to like search around and been like, Oh, should I have been friendlier? Should I have been, should I have not told that story? Should I have not done that? So I guess I, I've just always, for one, I've just never been, I'm not a great liar. Like, do you ever play that game werewolf? Have you ever yes. played that? Uh-huh. That game makes me cry. It always <laughs> makes my kids laugh. It makes me cry because I don't like being lied to, for one uh-huh. thing. Um, it always upsets me because I was lied to a lot as a kid. But mm. then also, like, I don't like to lie. I don't, I really do not like the feeling of lying. And so even when it's my turn, I'm like, I am not the werewolf. I'm definitely not the werewolf. And they're like, mom. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, it just, it's, I, I feel like, I think because for me, honesty is such a core, like honesty and accountability are like, that's who I am as a person. I want that for the rest of my life. So I guess that's just like in a podcast. I th- I think sometimes like when people are like, they're not into my comedy because it's like too much. And they're like, it's not funny. You're just like, like, I think that's one reason I'm not good on podcasts is because I'm just very vulnerable. And people are like, are you ready to riff about Superman? And I'm like, no, I'm here to talk about childhood trauma. You know, like... you're the best guest because you're open <laughs> like that. These are my favorite kinds of conversations. I always I always do. I like I do, you know, feel self-conscious sometimes because I feel like I'm just kind of a serious person a lot of times. And I'm I'm very honest. And, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like maybe I'm not a great guest uh, on things just because I'm like. Don't you know, like if way. you ask me a question, you will get an answer, not a joke, you know? <laughs> I appreciate people like that and I appreciate comics like that. So I don't, <laughs> Me I don't too. Think, I think you're a great guest. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the big things that I'm learning is is knowing yourself and confident, being confident in yourself and okay. Yeah, one thing that I learned, and it's kind of silly where I learned it from because it's a movie Swingers, but there's a line in it where um, Vince Vaughn says, uh, uh, certain people don't like me, I don't like certain people. And Mm -hmm. that struck me really hard because I saw that when I was 18 and I was like, oh, I don't have to care if someone doesn't like me because they're people I don't like and that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't like those people because they're jerks. And I try yeah. to be nice. So if you don't like me, I can just think you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. And I think life. and with comics, a lot of times, because we are like weirdos and maybe we're like a lot of comics weren't like, you know, like we're kind of ostracized as kids mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. had rough families and stuff. I think that we a lot of times are like very conflict avoidant. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, you know, that comes from being like, well, I don't want this person to reject me. And if I have just reached a point, I guess, in my life where I just like, I just don't really believe in rejection. Like, I, that's not a thing for me because like, if I am like, oh, I think you're amazing. And that person's like, I don't like you. I'm like, my feelings still stand, <laughs> you know, like, it's like, it doesn't really, you know, that that's how I feel about comedy. That's how I feel about love. That's how I feel about audiences. Like, I know, I know where, where I'm coming from. And if people are not into it, then that's fine. That's okay. And the confidence, yeah. And the confidence, that's not something you can fake. Unfortunately, you know, (laughs) it has to come from a genuine place. Like you can do the AA thing of like fake it till you make it for sure. But like, it really has to come from a genuine place of being able to, this is how I got to this place is my therapist made me um, for many years. I had to brush my teeth while making eye contact with myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you if you can get to a place where while you're brushing your teeth, you're making eye contact with yourself, um, and that anytime you say three one bad thing about yourself, you have to say three nice things. 
Um, if you can get to that point, I think like you can start to confidence is a skill set. You know, it's not if you had, I mean, maybe you had great parents and you just came out like, oh, my my boyfriend, my partner, Alex, he is just one of those people who like had good parents. He was loved grow, growing up and he's confident and he likes himself. And that's dope. I was I was for me it was something I had to like develop brick by brick. You know, I had to like build that wall of confidence slowly over time of being like, I'm smart. And I would have to be like, it's okay to call yourself smart. It's not, you know, you don't have to be ashamed of thinking you're smart. Like, you know, I think in our society, it's your shit on for being smart. You're shit on for being creative. I think you need to just like get away from all the shame of that. And yeah, I, I really think I'm pretty dope now. And that helps when someone else is like, ah, like I get a lot of hate on the internet, like this Bill Maher thing. Now that I've said this, there'll be, when this episode comes out, there'll be a wave of dudes being like, fuck you. But like, if you're like, I don't care. You're Bill Maher doesn't like me either. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's mutual. Twitter, like, it, you know, it's it's out there. It's, a, yeah. it's not news. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think not. Ben Affleck called him Islamophobic to his face on his yeah. show. Yeah. You know, people don't like this. They could deal with it. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because the people who like, I think of Kyle Kinane as being somebody who like, Kyle has this just beautiful, natural confidence about him yeah, that like yeah. Kyle has done shit where like, you know, like he's told somebody off in front of me where I was like, whoa, whoa. And that person still liked him because the way he did it came from a place of like not meanness, mm-hmm. integrity, mm-hmm. compassion. And also just like, I feel like, you know, you can get away with that if you're like, I'm not trying to change your mind. I'm just letting you know how I feel. Mm-hmm. And Kyle is like a perfect example. If you're like wondering, like, what is true, like healthy confidence look like? I always think of Kanane, you know, like he's, he's yeah. got that good. I like, I love, I love that energy, you know? Oh, and yeah. I, I want to get to that guy. Yeah. He's so he is a sweet guy and he is really confident and he is like very straightforward in the mm-hmm. nicest way possible. Really? I mean, it's, he's, uh, it, he's great. He's great. Yeah. He's he's really great. See, I like men. <laughs> <laughs> I love Canaan, so. <laughs> there it is. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm sorry that it took so long. I'm glad that you hit me up again because this has been very, very fun. It was really great. How awesome. I admire and appreciate her a lot. Big thanks to her. If you want to keep up with her, you can and support her Patreon at Emma Arnold at patreon.com and check out her YouTube at Emma Bean Six. You can see her special Yes Please on there. She also has a website, emmaarnoldcomedy.com, links in bio. Also follow her on Twitter at I Am a Road Trip, Instagram at Sleeve Hamster, and Facebook at Emma Arnold Comedy. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Also subscribe to our Comedy Lifestyle newsletter and support us if you can. We have a Patreon and a PayPal. Go to thereitispod.com. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 